Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. This morning's scripture is from Zechariah 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Next, I saw Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, May the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man like a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood there before the angel. The angel spoke up to those standing all around, Remove his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, I have freely forgiven your iniquity and will dress you in fine clothing. Then I spoke up, Let a clean, let a clean turban be put on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood nearby. Then the angel of the Lord exhorted Joshua solemnly, The Lord of heaven's armies says, If you follow my ways and keep my requirements, you will be able to preside over my temple and attend to my courtyards. And I will allow you to come and go among these others who are standing by you. Listen now, Joshua the high priest, both you and your colleagues who are sitting before you, all of you, are a symbol that I am about to introduce my servant, the branch. As for the stone I have set before Joshua, on the one stone there are seven eyes. I am about to engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord of heaven's armies, to the effect that I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, everyone will invite his friend to fellowship under this vine and under his fig tree. We're taking a slightly different approach than we normally take uh, on Sunday mornings here at Park City, which is to say we normally sit with a long passage of scripture, sometimes a book in its length, and we'll sit with it for some time over the course of weeks. And this season, we're taking a slightly different approach. We're actually picking up Um, a different reading from a different voice in the Old Testament each week. And these are passages of scripture that the church historically and globally has uh, picked up during this time of the year to make sense of uh, the birth of Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas. And we made the observation last week, again, that these are what are commonly referred to as the minor prophets, not minor because of their significance, but they're typically shorter and and briefer uh, in their length. But all of them are voices that speak uh, to the the sense of the the hopes and fears, the aching, the longing that we are sitting with during this season. They they are words that are at home during Advent. They pull us into a posture uh, of of waiting, of anticipation. And uh, each week, we're going to look at a different voice. Last week, we looked at um, Malachi, and and, and this week, we we hear from Zechariah. And and a bit of context, again, you know, last week, the question, it sort of spoke to an ache, uh, a question in us, maybe the sort of cynical feeling in us that we admitted is understandable. God, where are you? Will there be justice again? Where is the God of justice was the voice that uh, Malachi sort of helped us um, uh, give language to in our own ache. And this week, uh, we'll consider a different question. But I want to set the stage for that question again. So again, just to sort of give us some background, Zechariah, like Malachi, speaks to a, a very similar, if not the same moment. He's in what we would call the stream of uh, 
uh, post-exilic, right, after the exile. Israel has, has been sent back home, uh, a remnant of Israel, those who want to go back home and rebuild their home and city and religious practice, they've been given permission to do so. At this moment, the sort of ruling power was Babylon. It's been supplanted by the Persians, by Cyrus, and, and subsequent leaders who will supplant him. Uh, but in this moment, exiles have been allowed to return home, to rebuild. But what they find when we get there, like we observed last week, is that things are worse than they realized. Right, it's, uh, they're not just going to rebuild a city, but their life, their religious practice. And, and when they get back, you know, there is a sense of excitement. They're going to reestablish the temple. And for all of their history, reestablishing the temple was to build again the place where, where God's presence would be. Yahweh would once again shine among the nations and, and he would be restored uh, through them, his people, to his former glory. The universal reign of God among the nations would be finally realized. But like we saw last week, in this moment, when they return, things are not as they had hoped. Maybe that's a feeling you can relate to in your own life. Things are not like you had hoped. They find opposition. Regional leaders that had been longtime thorns in the flesh of the people of Israel have risen up and, and are actively fighting against their work to re build. They find their religious practices corrupted. Problems that existed before exist still. There's corruption uh, and sort of the, this expression to this part of their life is also once again flawed. But even physically, they're in the midst of famine and economic depression. Another voice from this period in the Old Testament, Haggai, this is what he says about this moment. He says, you work, we work, we work. The wages you earn get put into bags with holes in them. Right, that's the feeling, right? So not only is there political and, and geopolitical oppression, there's the experience that even the religious practice has uh, fallen prey to corruption, and now even just economically and, and socioeconomically, there is uh, brokenness, recurring themes in the life of the people of God on the pages of the Old Testament. And in the midst of all of this, Right, we read a book like Zechariah, and we'll just say up front, you caught a glimpse of it today with the seven-eyed stone. The book feels apocalyptic, right? If you've read like Cormac McCarthy or others where there's just this dystopian, like apocalyptic feeling to the book, themes that are common throughout this genre of literature in the Old Testament and Jewish literature outside of the Old Testament from that time, angels and Satan and cataclysmic endings to the world and a sweeping view of history and judgment and symbolism and the ultimate triumph of God. These are all themes that appear in the book of Zechariah. So Zechariah writes to this concrete moment uh, he writes to people struggling with all the questions they would feel from all the things they're experiencing. And we find in our reading this morning that he addresses a central question, similar to what we saw from Micah. It's a question that will appear again and again in the pages of his brief writing. But the question is, if I had to summarize it, it's something like, like this. The, the, the people are wondering, had the sins of their fathers, right? the reason they had gone into exile to begin with, had that forever broken their relationship with God. And if it's true, if they are still, right, they return, they're like, oh, this is the moment things get better. Wait, nothing is better. Well, then why bother with the relationship at all? 
right? If we, if we were going to summarize it again, we might say it's something like this, like, will we ever be clean? Will I ever get rid of this stain? And perhaps you have felt the weight of that ache this morning. Maybe you carry the lingering regret of your own missteps. Maybe like Zechariah's audience, the lingering stains of the sins of others have left you questioning the possibility of any sort of hopeful future. Remarkably, into this moment, Zechariah writes, and surprisingly, he writes a book full of promise and future and, and hope. We, we encounter the surprise. I'm really going to make an argument for surprise here this morning. So uh, you can apply it however you want, namely to your approach to presence. But, you know, uh, it, it, namely, it's just surprise after surprise in this passage. But the sort of fundament, fundamental one is that he, in the midst of all of this, he still manages to convey and call the people to hope. We'll begin with the, I don't know, the surprising first word of the passage. And then it starts in verse 1. Uh, he says, again, we're just jumping right into the middle of this sort of vision, this experience he has. Next, I saw Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Joshua is a prominent figure at this moment in the history of, of uh, the people of Israel. Joshua and Zerubbabel sort of representative leaders. One sort of the governor, the civic side of it. And Joshua, this priestly um, uh, uh, role and function in the community. And we're drawn into this moment, this description. Uh, the first surprise we encounter is the surprise of the scene that we're in. It's a courtroom scene. Joshua standing before the Lord and the host of people there to watch. And on his right is the accuser, there to sort of make plain before God and all who bear witness to this moment what is really going on here. The accuser at the ready. Joshua the priest, as the priest, he's the representative of God's people before uh, Yahweh. He is the embodiment as the priest of the character of holiness that God has called this people to, that is you know, delineated early in the Old Testament, all the lists and laws sort of marking them as, as holy and, and, and separate from the world around them, the story of their lives of, of failing again and again to live up to that standard. The priest, the sort of emblematic um, representative of God's ideal for his people. And we're here with him before God with the accuser on his right. And we're anticipating a word from the accuser. Right, we're on the edges of our seats. What is he going to say? The tone of the scene leads us to expect, well, he deserves punishment. Here it comes. There is legal ground for this moment of this proceeding for Yahweh to judge and punish. I don't know if any of you guys have followed. It's, I only followed it loosely, but I thought of the like the recent trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, the, uh, the cryptocurrency the guy who defrauded folks. So he made me like, like billions and billions of dollars as a 20-something-year-old, but had done uh, some things that were disreputable and uh, played fast and loose with the rules. But this has been whole elaborate sort of attention on this courtroom scene, the expectation of a verdict. That feeling sort of, I think, meets us here in this passage. We're ready for the accusation. But the surprise, the first surprise of the passage is, is what we hear next. You see it in verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, may the Lord rebuke you. 
May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man like a burning stick, a reference to Joshua, like a burning stick snatched from the fire? So just so we're clear, the, su- the first surprise of the scene is we expect the word to come from the accuser pointed at Joshua. And what really happens is God speaks up on behalf of Joshua and points the finger at the accuser. Yahweh is the one rebuking, and the person he rebukes here is not Joshua, but Satan, the accuser. In fact, he speaks right from the beginning a word of grace. He says of Joshua, isn't this one like a burning stick that I've snatched from the fire already? And there is in this image a reference. I have already brought them home from exile. If I'd wished to let them perish for their sins, I'd have left them in Babylon. The fact that you are here this morning is a word of grace. When all the voices in our lives that we expect are the voice of the accuser, what we hear from the beginning in the gospel is a word from God to the one who accuses you. I have already worked on their behalf. From the outset, the surprise of the passage this morning, the first one we find is this revelation that right from the beginning, grace is greater than all the guilt we may bring into this moment. This is the first surprise. God says, I've already snatched them out of exile. My first word over them is grace. The accusations here are directed at another. But there's another surprise in the passage. It takes a turn in the next verse or two. And it's, it's, if we were going to, uh, I don't know, give a voice to this one, I'd say it's like, are, are you sure? Right? Are you sure? Because he's filthy. Right? Surprise. Right? So, so the, the passage takes a turn. We're, 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 our attention is now drawn to Joshua. We see Joshua in the reading. We look at him now, finally, after hearing the surprising first word. And, and, and interestingly, I think we're meant to be, we're surprised at what we see. He's a priest, we've been told, so we expect the full like priestly garments, the garb that is representative of his role in the community, right? Again, whole portions of early bits of the Old Testament were devoted to descriptions of what the priest would wear. Right? As, the resent- as the representative of God's people, this sort of role in the community would be reflected with meticulous care and attention to the details of what he would wear and the ways in which it would be a visual reminder that God had marked his people as holy. Like the Grinch from a couple of weeks ago, I wore a tie. Right? There's something to be said in this passage. Like The, the, the priestly garments made a statement. I was trying to think of like examples from life as you or I may know it. Uh, I, I went a couple of places. Uh, I thought of like martial arts. Any martial arts uh, participants or fans in the house, right? You like the, 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 I'm not, so please take anything I say with a grain of salt. My understanding is it conveys like status, right? Colors uh, reflect achievement and there is like respect and, and honor wrapped up in, 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 in all of that. It's functional, but also it conveys status. I thought about the military, 
right? All of these external signs of either achievement or, or status. But I don't think those quite get at what, uh, what would be conveyed here. I landed on uh, the healthcare profession. I know we have some healthcare uh, workers in here and, and scrubs. We all know scrubs. It's, I have to work really hard not to quote the Destiny's Child song, Scrubs, or something, but totally different uh, context. Um, I don't want those scrubs or these, but, you know, anyway, we'll move on. So, um, but I thought maybe scrubs, I think, get at, yeah, oh, sorry, TLC, I didn't even have a, oh, man. Thanks, Todd. I can always count on you, Todd, to sort of keep me, uh, uh, yeah. You, <laughs> I don't know if I can recover from that, but, you know. but I, th- I thought about you know, scrubs sort of maybe come close, right? Because when you see them, you know immediately which side of the sort of line of disease those folks are on, right? They're working for health. Their they're, uh, scrubs are an indication they're going to do all the things they can to stop contamination, right? The, the contagion of what is happening in the spaces they're in, this is an indication of which side of that line of disease they are on. And the priestly garments, I think, do that. Sin and all of its brokenness was viewed like a contagion. The language of cleanliness is used frequently. It's, it's why Jesus was so remarkable because he was, he was literally crossing that barrier. And, and, and what, what would normally have happened is if someone had come into contact with that sort of disease, they would have been unclean. But Jesus flips that and says, that you don't make me unclean, I make you clean. And so he reaches to the leper and, and, and to the outcast. Right? It, it was, it's this image that the priestly garbs were, were an indication Right, a, a picture of holiness, of, of purity, of, of a, a visual reminder. And, and, and we expect to see all of that when we look at Joshua, particularly after God has already stood up for him and said, you know, the accuser, the accuser is the one out of line here. But what happens in verse 3? We look at him, we see him. And this is what we read. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel of the Lord. Literally, his garments were soiled, right? Uh, You know, you might say he was in an ugly Christmas sweater. Your definitions of ugly and sweater, you know, notwithstanding, whatever. Uh, Right? Like, he, he, he does not look like what we would expect. It seems, right? Here's the surprise. It seems like the accuser was right. He was right. Joshua's filthy. The accuser is justified in his accusation. If he is a representative, a picture of what the people are like, he's dirty. He's unclean. He's sick. He's broken. Surely God will turn his back on such defilement. At the very least, God will pinch his nose and turn away in disgust. What will his response be? What's the next surprise of the passage? I think because of where we started, you know where this is going. Will it be anger? Will it be disgust? Will it be judgment? The good news in this case, I think, is not to deny the condition of our clothing. The good news is found in God's response to it. The next surprise of the passage comes in verse 4, and I think it's a resounding, let me be clear from God. Let me be clear. Verse 4, we're told the angel spoke up to those standing around, defends him to the people around him, spoke up, and this is what he says, remove his filthy clothes. 
And then he looks at Joshua and says to him, I have freely forgiven your iniquity. I will dress you in fine clothing. We're met in this moment with a word of grace. I will remove the soiled garments of your life. I have freely forgiven your sin and I will robe you with new clothes. I mean, you don't have to work real hard to get to the prodigal son from this Old Testament passage. The son returns dirty and unclean, his clothes literally soiled, and the father says, take it all away and put the new robes on him. And in this moment, another definitive answer to the accuser. Silenced. The accuser who seems justified. I mean, his clothes are filthy. Yet God expunges his guilt, sets him free, forgives all of his iniquity. The judge has done the surprisingly unthinkable. He's had a gracious act of forgiveness. It's language that's picked up over and over again in the New Testament. We could look at any number of examples. Romans 8 is one. Those whom he has justified, Paul writes, he's, he's gotten rid of all the dirty clothes. He's also glorified and robed and clothed in what is new and, and clean. But if you're like me, you need a little more help stepping into an image like this. I went to Calvin and Hobbes. Any Calvin and Hobbes fans in the room? Yes. You know, discussing deeply philosophical questions in the most sort of uh, unexpected places. In this instance, they're sledding down a hill, and Calvin, the little boy, is having a conversation with his tiger friend Hobbes, a deeply philosophical discussion in an improbably uh, surprising place. Calvin says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hobbes, his tiger friend, says, you're worried you haven't been good enough. Calvin says, that's just a question, right? It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How do you have to be, how good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? To which Hobbes the tiger responds, Maybe good is more than the absence of bad. Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. I think it's what worries all of us. It's what Zechariah draws us into, right? Calvin's questions are the questions that haunt all of us. Can I be clean and clean enough? Will this ever come out? Will this come out to hear the gospel this morning from Zechariah, this small minor voice in the Old Testament, is to hear the surprisingly good news that whatever you have shown up wearing today, whatever you've shown up dressed in today, ugly or beautiful, whatever is in the eye of the beholder this morning, uh, a truly honest assessment of that, of not only the worst parts of you, but also the best parts of you. In front of God is all soiled garments, and yet his word to you and me, I have freely forgiven all of your sin. I love what follows. I love what follows in the passage. 
It's, this is such amazingly good news that Zechariah gets involved. He like chimes in. He speaks up in the first person. Zechariah gets caught up in the excitement and he exclaims, let's put a clean turban on his head. Right? This is not a continuation of sort of the priestly garments. It's essentially Zechariah is so excited saying, yes, let's crown him, right? Like this is incredible, such good news. God in his grace forgives sin even when the accuser is justified in his accusation. God in his grace forgives sin. Surprise. Surprise, you're here this morning. Is that not evidence enough, God says, that I have not given up on you? Surprise, you're filthier than you realize. But surprise again, I have freely forgiven. It's a beautiful moment, but the story takes another turn. All of this reverie, all of this gracious sort of surprise and joy in this moment takes a turn in what follows, verses 6 and 7. Then the angel of the Lord exhorted Joshua solemnly. The tone has changed. The Lord of heaven's armies, the, the Lord of hosts is the word here. If you follow my ways and keep my requirements, you will be able to preside over this temple and to attend my courtyards, and I will allow you to come and go among these others who are standing by you. And, and you read it and you think, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait a minute. This feels like a disturbingly big if. If, if you will obey. I mean, I mean, you've seen our track record, right? If the moment feels, it feels precarious. This conditionality is troubling. Giving their and, given their and our unreliability, and if like this falls like a lead balloon on the joy of God's grace in this moment, and we find ourselves back to that first question, wondering again, not only can we ever be clean, but will we ever stay clean? Not only will the stain ever come out, but what about those stains have yet to commit? C.S. Lewis is helpful for me here in mere Christianity. He describes our sort of fallenness in these terms. It's not simply that we're imperfect creatures who need improvement. We are rebels who must lay down arms. That is, before God, it's not enough to say nobody's perfect or we all make mistakes or I misspoke. And then sort of the, the summary is, is the bad is somehow more than just falling short. It's also more than sort of comparing ourselves favorably to the people around us. He reminds me, as this passage does, that the stain has set. It is deep. And into this moment, this realization, in the face of this overwhelming if, the scene continues and unfolds in one final surprising turn. Listen now. God says, Joshua, the high priest, you and your colleagues, all who are sitting here, all of you, a symbol that I'm about to introduce my servant, the branch. As for the stone that I have set before Joshua in this image, in this vision, on, on the one stone there are seven eyes. I am about to engrave an inscription on it, he says, to the effect that I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. In that day, says the Lord, Everyone will invite his friends to fellowship under this vine and under this fig tree. 
under the weight, the sort of daunting, looming size of this if, drawn again into the questions, can we stay clean? God says, let me introduce you to someone. Last week, it was the sort of Christmassy word, behold. This week, it's another equally sort of exciting word, listen now, God says. What do you hear? Last week, it was soap and fire. This week, it's a branch and a stone, but in both instances, it's a, an invitation to look at Jesus. The hopeful word in this image, in these images that feel obscure, God says, in the face of that if, I will send my servant a branch, a stone, an affirmation that I will remove sin and I will do it definitively and strongly and everyone will know the fellowship and joy of this servant's work. Yes, he says, this if is going to be too big for you. But I will raise up one in your place, a branch and a stone. The imagery is not lost on the New Testament writers as they try to make sense of Jesus. These images are thick with the hope of Christmas, the Messiah. He will come, the promise that he will remove guilt, uh, our own and our father's, the effects of those stains and the stains of others in and on our lives, and the assurance, the solid assurance as seen in that stone that he will finish it. He will accomplish this work. Later in Zechariah, the branch will show up again. In one instance, it'll be a king. The language will be a king. In another, we're told later in Zechariah that he will be a pierced figure through whom God will overcome guilt. This is the surprisingly final good word to all the ifs that you maybe carry into this place this morning. Before we take communion, I want to leave you with a, just a final image. Uh, as we try to think about what relevance this courtroom scene in Zechariah might have for us here, for you and me today. And, and I went to, uh, I was, my attention was drawn this week to an article in the New Yorker by a, a writer named Zadie Smith. And just kind of hang with me here. She's writing about her teenage experience as a teenage girl. The title of the, uh, of the article, The Fall of My Teenage Self. And in it, she starts, it's a humorous read, but she starts with like, uh, describing that move as a teenager, the contempt with which she sort of reacted to her mom and all sorts of, you know, established authorities in her life. Uh, but she begins like this, I've been thinking about teenagers, she says. I have one myself now. And of course, I was one once in a different world at a different time. And I can remember the feeling, she says, everything was extreme. Everything was extremity, and it still is. And she goes on to use this description, right? Do you know a teenager? Some of us are further away from that than we want to admit, but, you know, some of you guys are still pretty close. I don't know. Uh, but when you think about that season in your own life, she's like, I remember uh, now as I think about teenagers, my teenage life then, when I see teenagers now, she says, watching girls gather outside the multiplexes, which I guess is what people call movie theaters. I don't know. She says, I'm watching girls gather outside the theaters this past summer, choosing between Barbie and Oppenheimer. She said, I thought, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Brittle, impossible perfection on the one hand, or apocalypse on the other. Everything is extremes, she says. She goes on to write about sort of what that extreme experience was like in her own teenage life. 
she says a couple of things that I think are interesting that I hope to bring around to Zechariah. She describes the feeling, and maybe you have felt it, where as an adult, when she thought about her, thinks about her adult life, she goes back to that teenage voice, right? Her, the sort of extre extreme nature of her aspirations, all those things, right? The things she resisted and rebelled against, the things she celebrated and enjoyed. She thinks about that. And then she, the disparity between that intensity and sort of the life she has now. She says, I was chatting with my therapist uh, a few years ago, and I made this statement, you know, like, if my teenage self could see me now, she'd be so disgusted, right? <laughs> to which she said, her therapist replied, why assume that your 15-year-old self is the arbiter of truth? And this is the phrase that has hung with me. Why assume that your 15-year-old self is the arbiter of truth. I, I want to ask you the question this morning. Whose voice is that in your life? Maybe it's not your 15-year-old self. Maybe it is. Maybe it's your 23-year-old self. Maybe it's some earlier voice in your life that you hear speaking to you now. Accusation. And through that voice is the voice of the accuser. You should be disgusted. You are not who you thought you would be. Your life is not what you thought it would be. You, you, you have fallen well short of the expectation. Whose, is the, whose, whose voice is the arbiter of truth in your life? She says it's a good point but it hasn't stopped me carrying it around on my shoulder. I don't suppose at this point I'll ever be rid of her. I submit to you this morning that Zechariah says to you and me because of the branch and the stone, he, he invites you and me to surrender the voice in our lives. That voice, the role of that voice to God, to Yahweh, because of Jesus. And he says, what we will hear in that moment, we will hear from nowhere else. I have freely forgiven you. To let his voice, that word, be the final arbiter of truth in your life. I have freely forgiven you. Whatever the accusation and however justified it may be to hear as the final arbiter of truth in your life, I have freely forgiven you. Will you stand with me? Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, Visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.